So last week I started a, a little two-week series called, that I called Reality Check. Uh, just because I think it's important sometimes that we take inventory of our life and make sure that, that the way we perceive things in our life it really matches up with reality. Amen? And uh, whether you're newly saved or been saved for 50 years, it's good to have that gut check every once in a while. And last week I talked about authenticity and the importance of, of being authentic in our relationship with God and with ourselves and with others and, and how the world sees the church and how the world needs to see the church as being authentic and having a true, pure relationship with God. And so this week I want to talk to you about identity. And what I believe is the importance, uh, it's so vital that we find our identity in who we are in Christ and in no other place. And it's important for us in our relationship with God, but it's also important missionally in how the world sees us. Because it's, you know, our relationship with God is not just for us. It's, it's so that we can be a light to the world too. Amen. And uh, I want to read a definition of identity for you that I found. It says, a close similarity, a condition of being oneself and not another, characteristics that distinguish someone. Uh, I, I love the middle one there. It says condition of being oneself and not another. It's so important that, uh, that we are who we are supposed to be, that we are ourselves and not trying to be somebody else. You know, God's desire for us is that we would know our identity and that we would know our identity in him and not finding it, find it in other places, not find our validation in other places. Uh, there's a verse in John 10, 10 that you've probably heard a thousand times. If you, if you are a Christian, you've been in church, it says that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you would have life and have it more abundantly or have it to the full. That's what Jesus said. Jesus's heart for us as believers is that we would have abundant life. Does anybody here believe that? Yes, we are called to have abundant life. Now, what that word abundant means there though can be can be taken different ways. Uh, people have used that verse to say, oh, God wants you to be blessed. He wants you to be rich. And, you know, if you just love him, he'll give you everything your heart's desire. And, uh, and I, don't, I don't buy into that, that version of the gospel because I don't see, I, I see too many areas in the, in the world where this verse for someone in living in a, in a slum in India, uh, th- this verse to them does not mean you're going to be rich if you love God and you're going to have everything and, and everything's just going to be perfect and, and God just wants to bless you and love you and, and uh, uh, you know, take care of you and do everything that you ever needed or wanted. Because somebody that's living in a place of, of abject poverty or in a country where you know, there's a dictator and, and there's just no possibility of them working hard enough like you can here in the States. If you work hard, you can succeed. But in some countries, it doesn't matter what you do. You're just trying to survive. And so if that verse applies to them, to where they could have abundant life. Abundant life must mean more than just having a huge house and, and a Mercedes Benz and a million dollars in your bank account, right? Abundant life is about our relationship with him. He wants us to have that abundant life with him to where we would grow in our relationship with him and know him in the way that he wants us to, to know him so that we can have that relationship with him to where we will be fulfilled. I believe it means more about being a, have, living a fulfilled life than having stuff, amen? I, I would way rather be fulfilled than have a bunch of stuff because we know what happens to stuff eventually anyway. And so it's so important that we know our identity. And uh, I'm gonna, my message today is in three parts. I'm gonna start by talking about knowing your identity. And then I'm gonna talk about enemy, the enemy's distortion of your identity and then winning the battle of identity. And uh, when it comes to the word identity and, and knowing who you are and what you identify with and what makes you you, um, you know, we live in a culture today. We live in a society where... Um, you have to confirm your identity all the time. You know, I, I, have, I have so many passwords for email and bank accounts and, and things on my computer I, I, that I can't possibly ever remember all of them. And it drives me nuts 
You know, then they're always asking you to change your password. Like your password isn't difficult enough to, for, for somebody not to hack into your account. So we need you to have a symbol or an uppercase letter or it's not long enough or whatever. I mean, I'm constantly going to my 12-year-old saying, hey, what's my password again? Because we're constantly having to change it. You know, we're always having to confirm your identity. They want you to confirm your identity before you log onto your bank account or before you get an email. Uh, if, you, if you fly, you know, if you've ever been to the airport lately, you have to confirm your identity so many times it, it becomes ridiculous sometimes. In fact... I'm to the point where when I fly, I just keep my driver's license out and I just kind of hold it up because I know in five more steps, I'm going to have to show it again. You know, it's just constant having to prove who you are so that you can get on that plane. Uh, if you, uh, if, if God forbid you want to go to Fort Gordon and you're not part of the military, um, they're going to send you into that little guard shack and they're going to take your ID. They're going to make a photocopy of it. They're going to photocopy your insurance. They're going to take a picture of you that they put in their system. And I mean, there, there's times I've gone in there and I thought, man, I, I hope I come out. You know, I mean, they really want to confirm that you are who you say you are, you know, and that's not necessarily always a bad thing, but, uh, it it gets to where you, you know, you feel like that's all you're doing. I remember this past year, I had to pick up my daughter from school one day early because she had to take her to the doctor and even going in there, like I had to show my ID. They took a mug shot of me and put it on the computer. I, I literally looked like I was a convict. And, uh, I was thinking, my goodness, you know, they said, well, you know, we don't want, you know, just any Yahoo to come pick up your kid unless the Yahoo's the dad, you know? And so uh, we're constantly having to confirm our identity. But the, the beauty of that is that when we, when we do confirm our identity in those places, you know, when, when, you've, when you've shown the 18 airline personnel your ID and you finally get to get on that plane, there is a sense of belonging. You know, I paid my ticket and I belong on this airplane. You take some ownership. Because what happens is when your identity is confirmed, that it, it, it gives you access into areas that you wouldn't normally have access to. If you paid the price, if you are who you say you are, you have access into that. You have, I have access into my email because I've identified myself. I have access onto an airplane because I bought a ticket and I showed them my ID and it matches up with what they have in their system. And it's the same thing in our relationship with God. He wants us to have that abundant life, that fulfilled life with him. But we have to identify with him so that we can access that, which we wouldn't normally be able to access if we weren't identified with him. And see the abundant life that he wants to give us, that is, it's for everybody, but not everybody gets it because not everybody wants to identify themselves with Jesus. Those people that reject him and say, no, I don't wanna be identified. I don't want, you're not my validation. My validation is in other things. Well, then we don't get access into that abundant life that Jesus wants to give us. But when our identity is confirmed and we say, yes, I am a child of God. I am a child of the King. I belong in the family of God. Then that access is granted to us and we have a sense of belonging and it's a beautiful thing because you know, we all wanna matter. We all want to feel like we have worth and we have value. You know, as men, sometimes we try to act like tough guys, like we don't care about anything, but with truth be told, we really want to matter. And we want to know that we have a sense of belonging. Uh, I want to share a verse with you in Psalm 100, verse three. It says, know that the Lord is God. So first of all, he's saying the Lord is God. And then it says, he, it is he who made us. So he made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. What a beautiful thing. That, that paints an illustration of us being sheep. You know, we're referred to as sheep a lot in the word of God. And, but the, the visual that that paints is that, you know, God is our shepherd and he has sheep. He has a flock. Well, we are part of that flock. We belong with him. We have ownership with him. He is the one that validates us and gives us value, gives us our worth if we are in relationship with him. It's up to us whether or not we're going to stay in that flock and we're going to stay in the pasture with him. If we want to run off and, and go to the wolves, we can do that. But his heart for us is that we would stay in that, in that flock. In uh, Romans 8, 15 and 16, 
It says, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, this is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible because what this basically says is, hey, God didn't just die on a cross to save you from your sins so that you can get a get out of jail free card to get to heaven. That's not, he didn't just do it for that. that getting to go to heaven is a huge benefit of salvation, no doubt about it. It's, it's the biggest one. But that's not the only reason that he did it. He actually did it because he wanted to give you his spirit, which is a spirit of sonship, which basically means now you're part of the family. You're not a servant. You're not a friend. You're not a neighbor. You're, you're part of the family. He adopted us in. So we, we have the same rights as any child of God because that's what we are. We're a child of God. If you know the, the rules of adoption, even in our nation, you know, if, you, if you're adopted and it's official and it's done, you have the same rights as any birthborn child of that family. And that's exactly what God did for us. He brought us in to be his son and, or his daughter to be in the family of God. And so what we too often do as believers is that we, we, uh, we stray away from really understanding that love that he has for us, that father heart of God that he has for us. And what we find ourselves doing as Christians is we find ourselves striving in our relationship with God. And there's a big difference between striving and abiding. They're opposites. I, I talked a few weeks ago about abiding and how, you know, John 15, Jesus talks about us being the branches and he's the vine and he wants us to remain in him. He wants us to abide in him and in his love. It's about resting in his love. It's about knowing that I belong attached to this vine so I can rest in that because I'm secure in that. And if we're not secure in his love and who he is to us, then what we find ourselves doing is we strive. We try to, you know, we want to go to church and we want to read our Bibles and we want to pray and we want to be good people and we want to, we want to vote pro-life and we want to do the things that we think a good Christian would do. Those are all good things, but, but we're not doing it out of the abundance of our heart. What we're doing is we're trying to impress God or we're trying to show him that we love him or we're trying to earn our way into his good graces. And uh, a good example I can give of that is, is when uh, before Joy and I were even dating, we were both in uh, Youth with a Mission out in Colorado and we were on a team together. We were staff. We were on a team of seven staff that got in a van and drove to Florida for 10 weeks and went around to churches promoting missions, raising awareness of missions and, and raising awareness of youth with a mission in particular too. And uh, we weren't on the road a week and I started realizing, man, I really like being around her a lot. And uh, I like being around her more than I do all the other people on the team. And, but I didn't say anything because, you know, it would have been inappropriate and it would have been weird too if I talked to her and she didn't feel the same way. And we got 10 weeks together of me just sitting in the corner, you know, in the fetal position. So I didn't say anything, but I did find myself really trying to put myself in situations where I would be close to her or, or near her or just, you know, have to talk to her. You know, if I knew she was going somewhere, I'd kind of find myself there. Oh, fancy meeting you here, you know, and striking up a conversation. But I was really insecure in our relationship and our friendship because I didn't know how she felt about me. And so I found myself, I was striving a lot. I was putting on my best face. You know, I was always making sure my hair was combed and, you know, I was putting on clean clothes every day. You know, not that I wouldn't do that anyway, but, you know, they were extra clean. And uh, I even, close to the end of the trip, I even uh, talked to one of her, her best friend was on our trip with us. And so I even talked to her one day without saying it in so many words, trying to get an idea if she knew how Joy felt about me. And let's just say that for conversation did not go well. She gave me nothing. And so I was even more insecure. And well, we got to the end of the trip. There was like four days left on the trip. And I was thinking, you know what? I'm going for broke. It's close to the end anyway. I'm just gonna go talk to her. I mean, what, all I have to lose is my dignity and my self-respect, you know? And so I, uh, 
We were in a church one night and it was after we'd done some stuff and I got her in a Sunday school room. I cornered her in the Sunday school room and, uh, well, not literally, I don't want to sound like a stalker, but you know, I was in there with her. She was there by her, on her own free will. And, uh, I just told her how I felt. And, uh, as I'm telling her, I, she starts giggling and I'm thinking, oh good. Well, there goes my self-respect and my dignity. And, and now I have to go home and, and, you know, not ever go out in public again. And, uh, but after she got finished giggling, she proceeded to tell me that she felt the same way. And she was just giggling, I guess, because she was nervous. She couldn't believe that somebody would actually be blunt and tell somebody how they really feel about them. So that's a, that's a novel concept. And, uh, but when, when she shared how she felt about me and that, you know, she, she kind of had the same feelings, all of a sudden our relationship went from like this crush that I had on her and me really striving and being insecure to like almost instantaneously, I felt like, oh, this is good. You know, she feels the same about me. And, my, and our relationship went from me striving to kind of abiding in this relationship. You know, I was able to rest in knowing that she felt the same way about me. And I still did the same things I did before. I still, you know, held the door for her and, and did everything I could to, to uh, be around her and say nice things to her. But I didn't do it in a matter of striving to try to get her to like me. I did it out of the overflow of my heart. Because now I knew how she felt about me. So it was just fun. You know, every, every, we all know when you first get into a relationship... It's just a lot of fun at first. You know, it's, it's so easy. You don't even have to try. I mean, you know, I, I love my eight hours of sleep, but when you first get in a relationship, I'm like, you know, sure, I'll talk to you on the phone all night because you're scared. No problem. I don't need sleep. You know, I'll, I'll sleep on the weekend, you know. We're willing to make all kinds of sacrifices because we just, it's just out of the overflow. We're just excited because it's something that's new and fresh and exciting. But it's, it, it's, it's like that in our relationship with the Lord too, that when we approach our relationship with the Lord insecurely, like we want to show him how much we love him rather than receiving his love. What we do is we get into striving. We get into working for God. And we know that's not the way it's supposed to go because we, we love Jesus. We know what the word of God says, but we just can't help it if we haven't had that, that revelation of his love for us. But the moment we get that revelation of his love, all of a sudden it just becomes, oh, okay, now this is what abiding means. This is what resting in your love means. It means I know how much you love me. I'm still going to do the things I was doing. I'm still going to go to church. I'm still going to read my Bible. I'm still going to do all these things, but I'm not doing it to try to impress you. I'm doing it just because I, I love you. And that's exactly how God wants us to work in our relationship with him. So the, uh, the, the, the biblical scriptural story that kind of encapsulates this to me is, uh, is the children of Israel when they came to Samuel and said, we want a king. Because see, if you don't, if you don't get your validation from God, you're going to get it from somewhere else. If you don't get your validation from, your, from God's love for you, you're going to find it because we all have to be validated. We all have to be, feel like we matter. And so what the children of Israel did, they had never had a king. You know, God said from the very beginning, I'm going to be your king. And they had judges, but they never had a king. And uh, eventually the elders got together and they came to Samuel. Samuel was the judge at the time. And they said, Samuel, listen, we want a king. All the other nations have a king. We want a king too. And Samuel went back to, went to God and talked to the Lord and God told him that he said, Samuel, just give him a king. He said, don't worry, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And so if you know the story, you know Samuel went back, he anointed Saul king and Saul started out well, but he ended up being a total train wreck. But what it boils down to is that the children of Israel did not understand God as their king, but that God also, the, the father's love for them, that they were his children. They never really got that concept. You know, because it's ridiculous to think that they would want a king. They said, you know, we want a king to go into battle and fight our battles with us. And I'm, I'm sitting there reading that thinking, hmm, 
That's interesting because, you know, one of the battles you had was when you're running from the Egyptians and God just kind of parted the Red Sea for you and then covered them up in it. I think that's pretty cool. I don't know any other king that could do that, you know, but they're so short-sighted and they, they wanted validation. They wanted to feel like everybody else, that everybody else has a king. We want to have a king too, because that just, that just makes sense to us. But it's because they didn't really know the father's love for them. And so they went looking for their validation somewhere else. So it's important that we get our validation from the Lord. So what I want to do is, my second point is, I want to talk to you about the enemy's distortion of our identity. Because if you think the enemy's not involved in trying to get you to focus on a false identity, you've deceived yourself. Because that is one of his main tools against us as believers. That is a huge thing that he likes to do to us, is to get us to focus, try to find our worth, get our validation, get our, what makes us matter, get that out of something else in life and not him. Because he knows that the abundant life will not be in that. And he knows that he will stunt us and we will, we will waste all of our time and energy and focus on other things rather than on, on him, consequently being less effective to reaching the loss too. And so what, he's, what he does is he tries to get us to focus on a false identity. And I, there was just a few of them that I felt were pertinent that kind of came to my mind that I want to share with you guys to see if any of these resonate with you in regards to a, a false identity. And the first one that I thought of was uh, past failures and I even added past hurts. Um, anything from your past. So many of us identify with our past. We feel like, oh, I made, I made too many horrible mistakes in my past that, you know, that, that I know God loves me and I know he forgives me, but I still feel like it kind of disqualifies me from really being able to rest in his love and really understand his love because of the stuff that I've done or the, the, the things that have been done to me that, you know, if, if you can't get through a day or a week in your life without thinking about things you did in the past, then this is a false identity that you have. And the enemy loves it. And he will bring it up. He'll try to whisper it in your ear all the time because he wants you to harp on it. But I'm here to tell you today, church, that your past does not disqualify you. It absolutely does not disqualify you. It doesn't disqualify you from your destiny. It doesn't disqualify you from your calling. It doesn't disqualify you from God's love. It doesn't do any of those things. Our past is exactly that. It's the past. And the past may be this morning for you. You may have gotten in a fight with your spouse on the way to, work today, on the way to church today. It's in the past. You put it under the blood, amen? I, I was sharing last week about uh, 1 John 1, 9, where, where John says that uh, if, if we will confess our sins, that he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now that is shouting grounds for me because there is nothing you could do that could cause God to say, no, I'm not forgiving you. Not only will he, does he forgive, it says he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So if you've had something in your past that you messed up on and you bring it up, God's, God, is, it's like he's saying, I don't even know what you're talking about because I have cleansed you from all of that. So if it's being brought up, that's you bringing it up, not me. And he does not want us to, to live in the past. And frankly, we've all got stuff in our past that, that, uh, that is shameful to God, every one of us. Whether it had bigger ramifications for you, depending on what it was, you know, if you have divorced or you have a, you've been convicted, you spent time in prison or you, you did things that are just in the world's eyes are horrible. In God's eyes, it's irrelevant because if, if I, the Bible says, you know, if you commit adultery, that's a sin. Jesus also said, well, if you look at a woman lustfully, that's just, that's just the same thing. So he doesn't have different levels of sin. There's different levels of consequences, but in God's eyes, when he forgives, it's over and it's gone. And we can know that we're cleansed. And so we can't allow that. We can't identify and, and allow the things in our past to be what identifies us or makes us who we are. Um, oh, and Hebrews 12, 2. 
It says, it says that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Okay, so you were his joy. You were the reason he was able to go to the cross and with joy was because that he knew that it was going to bring that restoration, that our pasts were gonna be wiped out, that we were gonna be cleansed. So he wouldn't have done it with joy if it was just one of those things where it was like, well, I gotta do this or else nobody's gonna get to go to heaven. He did it because, it was, it was because we're his children and he loves us and it was his joy to do it. So the, the next one is your job or your title. A lot of us are, identify ourselves by our job or our title or how much money we make. And if you're not careful, this will define you. Now, for some of us, it can define us because we're really proud of our job and we work really hard and our whole life is dedicated to furthering our career, advancing our career. And it becomes all, it becomes kind of all, uh, I can't think of the word I'm trying to say. It consumes our life. There it is. It can consume you. And, and, I, and I'm not saying today that it's a bad thing to work hard and try to get ahead. That's, that's a beautiful thing. That's one of the greatest things about this country. I just said, if you work hard, you can get ahead and you can do well in life. Those are great things. We will never, ever not, we would never encourage you not to do those things. But it cannot be what defines you. There's a difference between working hard, trying to get ahead, and allowing what that is to define you. To where that's, that's, that's your primary focus in life. You, you, you would push everything else aside to make sure that you advance and you get what you want, you get yours, and uh, you're climbing the, the corporate ladder, whatever it might be, whatever those things are, that title, that job cannot define you. And, you know, we live in a culture today where, where people want to know what you do. You know, if, if, if you meet somebody new and you're chatting for a few minutes, one of the first questions people usually ask, what do you do? You know, we just want to know what other people do. And it's not always necessarily because we're trying to compare ourselves to them, just kind of out of curiosity. But what it can kind of become is like, you know, you want to be able to answer that question well. You know, when someone says, what do you do? Well, I'm, you know, I don't want to brag, but I'm a doctor, you know, or I'm a lawyer or, uh, you know, whatever it is, I'm really important, you know. But also the opposite is true for us, that we cannot allow, if we're not proud of our job or if we're not proud of what we do or we're embarrassed by what we do, we can't allow that to define us either. You know, some people will actually apologize for what they do. Like, well, you know, I just do this, whatever, you know, and they're almost got their head down and hat in hand. When really it's like, if you work hard, that's, it doesn't matter what your job is. Whatever the Lord's got you in, you know, the Bible tells us to work with all our heart as unto the Lord, no matter what we do. So we don't have to be embarrassed about anything that we do because it doesn't really matter. You know, I, I, I said in the first service, like, I'm, I'm so privileged and honored to be able to be up here and preach and share messages with you guys. And, and I'm, I do not take it lightly. It's a big, big deal to me. When I know I'm preaching on a Sunday, I, I devote a lot of time to prayer and study and, and trying to make sure that when I come on Sunday that I'm prepared and, and can, can bring the word the Lord wants me to bring. And, and it is an honor and a blessing. And I know I, you know, you get a lot of attention when you're up here on stage. You guys are all staring at me for 45 minutes and that may be a good thing for you or a bad thing. I don't know yet, but, but nevertheless, I'm up here and I'm in the spotlight. But I can tell you, for me, this does not define me. This is not my identity. I, I mean, I'm, I'm privileged to do it and I'm thankful that the Lord's putting that mantle on me, but it is not what defines me. I don't, I don't look to try to tell people what I do so that I can boast or, you know, make them ooh and ah or whatever. I, I would, if the Lord told me after today, he said, you're not, you're done preaching. Uh, you've used up your usefulness on the stage. I don't need you to do that anymore. What I need you to do to really help further my kingdom is to be a maintenance guy here at the church and mow the yard and, and unclog toilets. I would say, praise God, let's do it. I, I, with all my heart, I could do that because this does not define me. What defines me is his love for me and my relationship with him. And we can hide behind that even in ministry and say, you know, 
well, I'm in ministry, so that's, you know, that, that can define you because you're really, you know, you've got a vocation in ministry and, you know, you're a professional Christian, you know, and, uh, and we got to be careful not to even let that define us. You know, even, even if you're a volunteer in the church, like that can't define you. What needs to define you is his love for you and your relationship with him. So don't let your job or your title get in the way of that because that's exactly what the enemy wants. So the next thing is possessions. And specifically, a house or car or whatever toys you may have. Matthew 6, 19 to 21. Jesus said, don't store up treasures here on earth where moth eats them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. Okay, so this is another one of those things where it's okay to have stuff. It's just not okay when the stuff has you. Amen. There's nothing wrong with having nice stuff. There's nothing wrong with, with, with buying things. But when that's, when that's what defines you, if, if where you live or uh, the car you drive means more to you than anything else, then it's defining you. And it's a false identity. Because I don't care how pretty your car is today. I don't care how good it smells. That new car smell, that new car smell is going to go away. And eventually the thing's going to need brakes and tires and windshield wipers and if you've got kids, they're going to spill stuff on the carpet within a month. So it's not going to look that good soon, you know? So our identity cannot be in those things. Uh, I, I was sharing earlier that um, our refrigerator went out this week. It, it used up its youthfulness, its usefulness, I should say. And uh, so we had to go buy a new one. I wasn't real excited about it, but, you know, you've got to do what you've got to do. And uh, so we, Joy found a great deal. Uh, it's actually a pretty cool story. She prayed and asked the Lord, you know, for something specific, and the Lord totally provided it for us. It was pretty neat. And uh, so they delivered it Friday, brought it in, and it's nice and shiny. You know, our, our other fridge was about 10 years old. And, you know, we have three kids that go in the fridge a lot. So you can imagine how that fridge looks sometimes if you get behind on cleaning it. And uh, they put the new one in, and it was nice and shiny. And, I mean, we found ourselves, like, opening the door and looking in and close the door. And then you go back and open it again. And uh, we're just, and I told Joy, I said, man, it really it just, like, spruces up the kitchen, you know. It makes it look nice in there. And, and we were just kind of laughing because I started thinking, you know, like, my, my family, I got some family coming into town today, actually, that's going to be with us for a week. And they're going to come in, and they're probably not even going to notice it, you know, because they don't, they're not, they live up in Ohio, so when they come, they don't know what our fridge looks like. And they're not going to care, you know. So I, I would never, like, you know, my brother comes in and say, hey, man, look at this new fridge. How cool is that, you know? I mean, he'd probably look at it and go, oh, well, cool. So the refrigerator side cools and the freezer side freezes? That's pretty neat, you know. They all do that. And it's nice and shiny now, but in a month, even Joy and I are going to be like, yeah, who cares? You know, it's a fridge. It keeps, the, it keeps the milk cold for us. Because within a month, you know, my kids are going to do something to ruin something in there. I can almost guarantee it. And so, so we, we have to make sure that our identity is not in those things. Because the thing is about, I mean, a fridge is a, a funny example. But with any possession we have, nobody cares half as much about your stuff as you do. Nobody. Nobody cares about your house. Nobody cares about your cars. Nobody cares about how much money you have in your bank account. It's just, it's not as important to other people as it is to you. And so to think that our identity would be in that is laughable because, because nobody's that into it as much as you are, right? And the opposite is true too. Like if you're embarrassed of your house or your cars, you know, if your cars have 300,000 miles on them and no hubcaps and, and the one headlight's out, you know, and you're embarrassed to let people see you in it, that's ridiculous, if it gets you from point A to point B, it's a great thing and it's a blessing. And so we don't need to be embarrassed about a provision that we have, but we don't need to be proud and find our identity in it if it's a great thing either. 
Because that's not what, you know, the, the scripture I read from Jesus, he said, you know, don't store up treasures on earth because moth and rust are going to destroy it. I, I, I think Jesus should have had some kids because if he had kids, he would have said kids and rust are going to destroy it. So there's no sense. My kids are wonderful. I love my kids. They're just, they're just kids, you know, they ruin stuff. So, all right. So the next one is your appearance. Now, for some of us, we don't have to deal with this. My appearance, you can tell, I obviously, it's not a big deal to me. Uh, for a lot of us, it's not. But for some of us, I've seen it a lot where people find their identity in how they look. And this, again, is something that can be good or bad. Some people, they, find their, they feel like they're unattractive, and so they're, they, they find their identity in that. And you can, they kind of wear it on their sleeve. You can kind of see it. You, know? you don't want to talk about looks or, or clothes or, or you know, body style or anything because you, you know it'll make them feel insecure people that really beat themselves down. But then there's the opposite too, people that you know, are really puffed up and arrogant because people have told them their whole life that they're attractive or they're beautiful and, uh, and they find their identity in that. And you could tell because they spend all their time you know, making sure they're dressed to the nines, making sure they're, they, they look good and they, they live at the gym 30 hours a week and you know, they go above and beyond what the normal should be. And again, this is another thing where there's nothing wrong with looking nice. There's nothing wrong with taking care of our temple. We're supposed to. We're supposed to take care of ourselves. It's, it's okay to look nice, but it, it can't find our identity in that. Because no matter how good you look at 25 or 30, when you get 75, 80, 85, it's, you're not going to look the same. It just doesn't. Things just don't hold up. You know, I'm 42 and I'm seeing it. You know, I used to be able to eat whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted. I'd get up at midnight just to eat it, slam a double cheeseburger. And now if I did that, I would have heartburn all night and I'd weigh about 400 pounds. So things just change. So, you know, Proverbs 31, the, the, the famous chapter about, about the Proverbs 31 woman, verse 30 says, beauty is fleeting. Fleeting means short-lived or um, temporary. It, it's, it's something that's not going to hang out forever. So don't, have, don't put your identity in that. You know, it's okay to have nice things. But again, it's kind of like your possessions. People don't care how much you spend on your clothes. They don't, you know, the, the labels, the the Aeropostale and whatever the other popular labels are right now, nobody cares if you got that on your shirt. It's not a big deal. It only, it only matters to you mostly. And when you find your identity in it, it's very disappointing and it hinders you. All right, so the next one is talents. Talents and giftings. Now this is something, you know, we all have talents and gifts that God has given us. Some of you may not even know what yours are, but you may feel like you don't have any. Some of you may know what yours are and you you identify with those. That's, you feel like if your talents and your gifts are what give you value or make you feel like you're worth something or that you matter because you have some kind of talent that not everybody has, then you have a false identity in that. And that's exactly what the enemy would want. He wants you to find your identity in how good you are at something. You know, whether it's computers or construction or math or teaching, whatever it is, Whatever talent God has given you, a gifting that he's given you, if you're finding your identity in that, if that's what makes you feel like, yeah, I have something to contribute to this world because I'm good at dot, 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 then that's a false identity for you. And that's not God's best for you. He wants us to use our talents and our giftings for his glory, but not to become what defines us. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense for us to take what God's given us to say, well, this is what gives me value. No, what gives you value is the God that gave you those gifts and those abilities. Amen? And so that's what we need to focus our, our attention on. And then I had a few others that uh, I don't even think they're going to have up there. They're just, uh, I kind of called them honorable mentions, uh, false identities that we have. One is education. 
For some of us, it's a big deal that we have, you know, 18 master's degrees and a couple PhDs and, and all of that. And uh, again, nothing wrong with education, but it can't be what, identif- what, what identifies you or validates you. The next one is intelligence. If, if your intelligence level is what makes you feel like you have something to give to society, that's a false identity. Parenting is another one. I, I meet lots of people that find their identity in being a parent. And I, I love being a parent. It's one of my favorite things in the whole world. Nothing can make my heart jump like being with my kids. But that is not where my identity is. And that's not what your identity is, is meant to be. When we have insecurities in the world and in our relationships, sometimes when we have kids, we'll, we'll throw our whole life into those kids and, and make that really about who we are. Like if you weren't a mother or father, you wouldn't know what to do with yourself. And that's, that's a false identity. Of course, we're called to love our kids and raise them up and to be godly examples for them, but they cannot be what identifies us. And then the last one is relationships. Some of us find our identity in relationships, just having a lot of friends. You know, I know people like that, that they, they want to brag about having 8,000 followers on Instagram, you know, or, or Facebook, which that's hilarious because most of those aren't even your friends. They're just following you because they want to look at your pictures and laugh at you. But, but having a lot of friends and having that big circle or, or being in a relationship, you know, the, we all know the guy or girl that always has to have a girlfriend or boyfriend. You know, if they, they don't have a girlfriend or boyfriend, they don't know what to do with themselves. You know, they feel like they're going crazy. Those kind of things, those can't identify us because, because that's, that's what the enemy would want in that as well. So uh, there was one aspect of, of a false identity that I just want to make sure I'm clear about. Because one of the biggest dangers of having a, a false identity and living that way is that when we, when we have that, when we find our, our worth in something other than our relationship with the Lord, the world sees it too. And see, we all... Most of us have people in our life that aren't saved, but most of them probably know that you are saved. So they're watching you. They know you're a Christian and they're watching you. When they see you focusing all your energy and finding your identity in your, your house or your job or your relationships or your kids, they're seeing that. And they're saying, well, you're, you're not any different than me because that's what I do too. You claim to have this God that's so wonderful and awesome, but yet you're finding your identity in all these other things. And the world sees that and it causes them to step back and say, well, What's the big deal? Why would I want, to, why would I want this Jesus if, if all you're doing is still putting all your energy and focus into other things? And uh, there's a verse that, uh, that I wanted to share from, from John. It's, it's uh, Jesus talking at the Last Supper. It's in chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. It says, a new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And then I just put in parentheses there, this is fresh off the acknowledgement that he was going to be betrayed. This was right after Judas left. Jesus, instead of, you know, slamming Judas to the other disciples saying, boy, you guys are lucky you're not him because he's going to get what he deserves. He immediately talked to his disciples and said, listen, the world's going to know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so the world needs to see us, the, the, the identity that they need to see in us as believers is love. That's what they need to see in us is the love that we have for God and, and knowing, and when we have that opportunity to share that with them to say, the reason I'm doing this for you is because of the love God has for me. And I'm expressing that love to you. Uh, you know, a few weeks ago, you guys all know about the, the massacre in Orlando. Some terrorists went into a, a gay nightclub and, and killed 49 people and injured 53 people. And, you know, it happened on a early, early on a Sunday morning. And that, that Sunday, during the day, they were, uh, the hospitals needed blood because, you know, they were doing a lot of blood transfusions. And so, People were lining up to give blood. I'm sure you probably saw it on the news. And uh, so what Chick-fil-A in Orlando, a bunch of the Chick-fil-A's, I think it was like five or six, maybe even more Chick-fil-A's in Orlando, 
actually opened on a Sunday, which, you know, being, being in, in the South, Chick-fil-A opening on a Sunday, we know the end is near. And so Chick-fil-A opened up, made chicken sandwiches and biscuits and all kinds of food and took it and gave it free to the people that were waiting in line to give blood. Based, and these people waiting in line were given blood because of the, 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 the homosexuals that were shot and hurt and injured during this, this uh, horrific attack. And when I saw that, you know, it wasn't publicized a lot in the news, but if you Google it, you'll, you'll see lots of articles about it. But it just struck me so much because, you know, Chick-fil-A has this reputation. It's getting a reputation for being homophobic and, 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 and being gay bashers, and it, which is ridiculous because we know that that's not who they are. But nevertheless, the world is giving, they're getting that reputation. And so for them to go the extra mile not only to open on a Sunday and then to give the food away free to everybody waiting in line, knowing that most of the people waiting in these lines were probably homosexuals too, because they're giving blood for their friends. And to give that food away free, it made an impact in the community. It made a huge impact in the community. And church, that is what, that's what it's all about. That is what it's all about. It's about the, the world seeing us and seeing the identity that we as Christians have, seeing that our identity is about loving others because of what God has done for us. And when we do stuff like that, when we go the extra mile, we see God move on behalf of those people for his kingdom. I promise you, I can almost guarantee you people got saved because of these, this act of kindness that the Chick-fil-A's were doing in Orlando. And I think it's great. So I want to I wanna finish up here by, tell, by giving you winning the battle of identity. Because again, we know that the enemy is not just going to sit by and go, all right, you guys know that your identity is in Christ, so I'm just going to leave you alone. He's going to continually fight this because this is a big deal to him. And so it's important that we understand how we can win this battle because we can win this battle, but we have to understand God's heart for us. That's, that's the beginning and the end of it is understanding God's heart for you, understanding the father heart of God for you in your life. And I want to read a verse that kind of encapsulates it. I'm sure you've probably read it before. It's from Psalm 139, verses 13 to 18. The psalmist says, for you, were create, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake, you, I am still with you. Now, I love this because this, the first verse out of that that I just read uh, talks about us being knitted together. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen anybody knit, but my, my grandma used to knit. We'd go over to her house. She'd be sitting in her rocking chair, and she was knitting away, and she would make these you know, horrible-looking sweaters and blankets. Um, the quality was good. It was just you know, the color because this was back in the 80s, so all the colors back then were weird. But uh, she, would, she would go through painstaking effort to knit stuff together. And I watched her do it. And, and so I understand what this verse means when it talks about us being knitted because knitting implies painstaking effort. You can't accidentally knit something, you know, and there has to be skill involved. It has to be very intentional and very deliberate to be able to knit something together. So that tells me that God, that you're not random, that you didn't just happen. You know, the world would want to tell you you're random, but you're not. God knit you together. It says that he knew you before you were in the womb. All your days were ordained before one of them even came to be. That's a beautiful promise. That tells me, that just gives us a glimpse of God's love and his heart for us. And, uh, you know, I, I can tell you that my, my uh, uh, the revelation that God gave me of his love for me when it, that really changed my life 
was when my first child was born. Uh, Taylor is almost 15, so this was almost 15 years ago. Uh, when we, when Joy and I first got married, you know, we had big plans. We were going to do this. We had, you know, we were young and naive and we were going to do all these things. And, and then two months after we got married, she got pregnant and that changed everything. And uh, that was, uh, that was not planned by us. It was planned by God, but not us. And so needless to say, I was a little freaked out. I was just getting used to the idea of being a husband. Now I was having to get used to the idea of being a dad too. And uh, so, you know, we went through the pregnancy and, and it was, it was good, but you know, it was hard for me to get excited because I was, I was more freaked out. I mean, I was, I was glad to be a dad. I wanted to have kids. So it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't like I didn't want kids, but it was just happening really quickly, you know, and I was a little freaked out and, and Joy was even getting a little concerned at times. She'd say, you know, you just don't act excited about it. And, you know, I just would always tell her, well, you know, as a guy, you know, we need, it's like we wait till the baby's born, you know, so we can actually see it. I'm a visual person. You know, all I see now is a bump in your belly and, and a lot of heartburn and moodiness. So, uh, so it's hard for me to be really excited. Um, so, but the day came for, for Taylor to be born and, and uh, they induced her because she just wouldn't go into labor for some reason. And she was in labor for, oh my goodness, what seemed like three days. How long was it, Diane? Good 12 hours probably. And they finally said, you know what? This baby's not coming naturally. We're going to have to do a C-section. So that kind of freaked us out a little bit. Like, oh, great. Now we have to have a major surgery. And, but, you know, she went in, had the C-section. Everything went fine. Taylor was born. It was beautiful. I remember holding her at first and, and just thinking, this was incredible. I mean, I just, I just fell in love with her right away. And I was excited. But at the same time, I was still like, oh, this baby's all my responsibility. And I don't know what I'm doing. I didn't even know how to hold her, you know. And, um, but, but everything was good. And, and then that, that evening... After everything calmed down, we were in our room. Joy was in bed. She was high as a kite because they had her drugged up from the, from the C-section. So she was out of it. And I was just sitting in a chair there, and Taylor was in the room in a bassinet. And uh, I was just kind of thinking about the day and recollecting what happened that day. And, and something told me to get up. Well, I know now it was the Holy Spirit. told me to get up and go look at her. So I got up, walked over to the bassinet, and Taylor's in there. And I'm looking down at her, and she's looking kind of blue. And I was thinking to myself, you know, I don't know much about this father thing, but I don't think babies are supposed to be blue. And so I just stood there and I kept watching her and she kept getting darker and darker blue. And so I knew something was up. So I snatched her up and I ran out in the hallway and our room was right by the nurse's station. So, you know, I'm thinking I go out in the hall and somebody will be there and help me. Nope, nobody's there. I, I don't know. I guess, I guess the hospital was closed because there was nobody. And uh, so I just started yelling, you know, I was like, hey, my baby's not breathing. And a nurse comes running around the corner and she grabs her and she, you know, takes that sucky thing and starts sucking out her airways and pulling on her hair, you know, to try to, she said, I got to make her mad. So she screams. And uh, so sure enough, Taylor starts screaming. She coughed up some stuff and she got everything cleared out. You know, it was no big deal, but it, the whole thing probably lasted a minute, you know, but it felt like an hour. And uh, when it was all over, you know, she handed Taylor back to Joy. By this time, Joy was more alert. She saw what was going on. And so Joy's holding her and I'm just standing over and I look down at, at my baby and the floodgates just opened. My eyes filled up with tears. And I'm telling you, I was not a crier. In my whole adult life before I had children, I probably cried one time. Now that I have kids, I cry all the time. Um, <laughs> but, but at this point, I had never cried. And my, I mean, it was just, I couldn't even see. I had so many tears rolling out. And, uh, you know, I was embarrassed because the nurse is standing there. You know, I'm a tough guy. I can't let her see me cry. And she looks at me and she's like, are you okay, sir? I was like, yeah, I'm fine. I think I'm allergic to something, you know. Um, and so she left, you know, cause she realized everything was okay. And I just stood there and I sobbed and Joy's just kind of laughing. She's like, Oh, look at you, you know, <laughs> but I just, I had this overwhelming love for my child that I could not believe. I, I didn't even know how to explain it. Uh, if you're a parent, I'm sure you probably understand. I mean, I just literally felt like, you know, how the Grinch's heart grew three sizes. I felt like my heart literally grew. 
And um, I just had this love that I'd never experienced before. I mean, there's something about, you know, a, the love for a spouse is a beautiful thing, but there, the love for a child to know that you helped create this and it's got your DNA and it's part of you is pretty phenomenal. I, there's no way to explain it. And I really, I felt it at that moment. And I was astonished because I'm sitting there thinking, this child has done nothing but cause us misery and grief up to this point. You know, she made my wife miserable for nine months. And, uh, and now she stopped breathing and scared the bejesus out of us. And here I am just like weeping over her and so happy that she's okay. And uh, I spent the next three days, like every couple hours, I would just start crying. I didn't even know why. And uh, the next morning, actually, I was on my way to the house to get some clothes for us to, and take them back to the hospital. And I was driving along and I started crying and I was just praying, talking to God. And, and God, he spoke to me and he said, that love you feel for that child, I've given you just a small, tiny glimpse of my love for you. And oh my goodness. Then I cried again all over the place. <laughs> and I just couldn't believe it because it was, it, was, it was real to me. Like it wasn't just something I've heard or I've read or a preacher has told me. I actually experienced it and I understood that his love for me is like that. And it's the same thing. I didn't have to do anything to earn his love. Taylor done nothing to earn my love. If anything, like I said, she, she made it rough for us. But because she's mine, I had this incredible love that I couldn't even explain. And it's the same thing God is to us. It's the same thing he would say to us. It's not because of what you do. It's not because you act right or because you come from the right stock or because you've, you've done the things I've told you to do. It's because you're mine. And that's why I love you. And that's why I'm so passionate about you. I'm more passionate about you than you will ever be able to comprehend in a million years. You'll never understand how much I love you. And, uh, and having that feeling about Taylor was so, it, it did something to me. It changed me. I went from striving to abiding. I'm able to rest in that love knowing that no matter what I do, I can never make him love me less. And no matter what I do, I can never make him love me more. And that is such a beautiful thing. You know, I, before that, up to that point in my life, I, I'm a middle child. So I'm kind of the typical middle child. I, I always wanted the attention. I did whatever I had to do to get attention in a group of people uh, from the time I was a kid till I was an adult. You know, if I was in a, at a party, I was going to make sure everybody knew I was there and I was going to do whatever I had to do to get attention. I had to be the funniest in the room and I had to, you know, I'd say outrageous things to try to get attention. And, uh, and, but from that point on, I realized, okay, my identity is not in trying to be somebody to try to get attention. My identity is in who he says I am. And I can honestly say, I don't, I don't need attention anymore. I know some of you are shocked by me saying that, but it is the truth. I really don't need attention. I prefer, I almost prefer to be in the background nowadays because I know that my identity is not in that. It's not about me being up here. It's not about whether or not I'm a pastor on a staff at a church. It's not, it doesn't matter what I'm doing. My identity is not in any of those things. It's in what he is to me and who, and who he is to me and who I am to him. And that's God's heart for each and every one of us. And I hope that you guys, that, that God will give you that revelation if you've never had it, or if you have had it, maybe you've strayed away a little bit. You've kind of allowed other things in the world, some of these false identities that I mentioned, you kind of allowed them to creep in and you kind of identify yourself with those things rather than your relationship with the Lord. I want to I challenge you today, and I want to be able to pray for you that, uh, that, that, that God will give you that revelation or help you, you know, with that reality check that we're talking about. You'd be able to take inventory and say, yeah, you know what? I've got a little bit out of focus here, and I want to be able to get back. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we close. And I just want to, just want to challenge you today not to be okay with the status quo. Let's not be okay with the status quo of what so many of God's people do and just kind of go through life doing their thing. I'm going to ask the prayer leaders to come and be on the sides here. If you need prayer for anything today, health, finances, 
you need a miracle, we got people that will pray with you and believe with you that God can move on your behalf. I'm going to ask you to come to them. But if you want prayer for, for, for what I've been sharing today, I want you to come to the middle here, and I'd like to pray for you. Um, if you. If you need that revelation of God's love for you, maybe you've never had it. Maybe what I said about God revealing to me that you know, my love for my daughter was just a fraction of what he feels for me. If you've never felt that way, you never felt that God loves you that way, and you really want him to reveal that to you, please don't wait. Just come on up here and let's pray for you. Because I believe God can reveal it to you. His anointing is here. His Holy Spirit is here today. He can do whatever he needs to do. So I'm going to ask you to go ahead and come now as I, as I continue to talk. If you, uh, maybe you just have allowed yourself to kind of get, get off track a little bit. You're, you're identifying with one of those things I mentioned. Maybe you're too focused on your work or your appearance or your, uh, or your relationships or your children. And you just need to kind of get back on track. You need to refocus. Please come up. Let's pray. I'd like to pray for you today. I believe this is a word for you this morning. So please come. We'll wait a minute. I think, I, I think of John, the Apostle John, and how he, he kept saying in, in his gospel, he kept saying that, that uh, he was the one that Jesus loved. You know, he, he talks about that quite a bit. It's mentioned four or five times in his gospel that, that he was the one that Jesus really loved. And I remember thinking, man, that's really arrogant of him to say that, you know, like talk about, oh, I'm the one that Jesus really loves. But it wasn't. It was the fact that he had a revelation of God's love for him. And that's probably why he was the only one that stuck around when Jesus was crucified. He was the only one that didn't abandon Jesus. But it's because he knew the love that Jesus had for him. He wasn't always trying to convince people how much he loved Jesus. He was convincing people how much Jesus loved him. And he eventually used that to be a witness to the world and to help bring people to Christ. So that's what I want to pray for for us today, that we would have that same revelation. Thank you, Lord.